You know, it's Palm Sunday today, and we're uh, finishing this series called Preparing for the Passion as we approach Easter weekend. Actually, I have to tell you, I wish this morning, and I came very close to doing this, I almost wish that we could just put the DVD of The Passion of the Christ on and we could just watch that movie this morning. Um, I, I saw the movie when it first came out, and I don't think I've seen it again until this week. And uh, there's a lot that uh, I think, you know, really just being able to visualize uh, really helps us to understand about the story. But to be honest with you, after debating about doing some of that, I thought that it may not be fair without preparing you for that. Because to be honest with you, it's so graphic. There's so much torture that happens in that movie. I'm just not sure that uh, that we'd be ready for that this morning. But if you remember last week, we saw that after Jesus left the Last Supper, he left that last Passover with his disciples, he was in terrible agony in the Garden of Gethsemane. That's kind of how we left it last time. By the way, somebody has said about that struggle that we talked about in the Garden, the agony in the Garden opens a window into the greater agony of the cross. Now listen to this. If to bear man's sin and God's wrath was so terrible... In anticipation, what must the reality have been like? That's what we're going to think about together today. No longer is there any any anticipation. Jesus is on his way to the cross. And I want to talk to you today about the crucifixion. And we're going to focus on really three main stages that Jesus kind of progressed through from the time that he was in the garden to the time that he actually died upon the cross. What happened in those moments, in that day or so of time. And it started out, first of all, with Jesus' betrayal and his arrest. And I'm going to start reading for you in Matthew chapter 26, verse 47. Apparently, just after that time in the garden, when he was there with the disciples, if you remember, if you were here last time, Jesus had gone to the garden there, and we had said it was almost like a a prelude or a precursor. It was almost like you could see Jesus beginning to, to make the transition to the cross. He's beginning to sense the weight of the cross. And, and we're going to certainly see that, that he understood the physical price that he was about to pay. But I don't think that was what it was, ultimately. Ultimately, what he was beginning to sense in that garden is that he was taking upon himself the weight. One person bore in his body the weight of all the sins of all mankind. And as he was doing that, remember we talked about the disappointment of he said to the disciples, hey, could you guys just kind of wait here with me in the garden? Could you pray for a little while? Could you watch and pray with me? And we saw him go back several times. and They they were snoozing each time. And we shake our heads at them, but I have to think I'd probably been doing the same thing too. That late at night, you know, I don't don't like to stay up that late. And that late at night, I probably would have been, I would have been clueless as well. Here Jesus is in the middle of all that disappointment. He finally says at the end of uh, verses 45 and 46, Guys, are you still sleeping? Are you still resting? Listen, it's time. Get up. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. That's where we pick up in verse 47 with Judas' betrayal with a kiss. It says in verse 47, While he was still speaking to those disciples in the garden, behold, Judas, one of the twelve, came up accompanied by a large crowd with swords and clubs, who came from the chief priests and elders of the people. Now he who was betraying him gave them a sign, saying, Whomever I kiss, he is the one, seize him. Immediately Judas went to Jesus and said, Hail, Rabbi, and kissed him. And Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you have come for. Now Jesus knew that this was coming. In fact, he had predicted to the disciples 
that they were going to scatter. He had predicted to the disciples that Judas was going to betray him. By the way, he is God, amen? I mean, he knew ahead of time. Yes, in his, in his humanity, he limited him, he voluntarily limited himself in some ways, but he still did not cease to be God. He knew that this was going to happen. But can you imagine, even in spite of that, somebody that you spent day and night with for several years of your life, and now that person is turning their back on you? And what a slap in the face. How blatant was his uh, betrayal and when, then the way that he betrayed Jesus is he walks up to him and he gives him a kiss on the cheek. Then we see Jesus arrested in verses 50 through 56. It says, Then they came and laid hands on Jesus and seized him, arrested him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus reached and drew out his sword and struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, Put your sword back into its place. For all those who take up the sword shall perish by the sword. Or do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions, 72,000 angels, if Jesus were to ask for it? How then will the scriptures be fulfilled which say that it must happen this way? At that time, Jesus said to the crowds, have you come out with swords and clubs to arrest me as you would against a robber? Every day I used to sit in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place to fulfill the scriptures of the prophets. Then all the disciples left him and fled. As we walk through this story, again, the temptation for me was to show you this on the screen so that you could visualize it. But I'm trusting today, this morning, because that was so graphic that I wasn't sure they'd be appropriate to show. But I want you to think about that. The reality of what Jesus Christ is about to go through for us is so graphic that I would say to you, I'm sorry, I'm thinking you probably wouldn't want to see it. But I'm going to trust today that God's going to help us to visualize as we study his word, as we read his mighty word, that he can bring that to light to our eyes. And what we see here in Matthew is that there's a large crowd of people with weapons who are coming out to arrest God. In John chapter 18, it specifically says they were officers. They were temple policemen. And the Bible tells us here in these verses that one of his disciples in John chapter 18 tells us it was actually Peter. Peter was trying to defend Jesus. We know Peter was kind of a little bit off the cuff all the time. He was a little bit impetuous. He made quick decisions and sometimes not the best decisions. So I don't think he was aiming for the guy's ear, do you? I think he just wasn't a good, he wasn't a good swing. He hit the guy's ear. And one of the other gospels tells us that Jesus immediately heals the guy's ear. Actually, uh, one of the gospels tells us, John chapter 18 tells us the guy's name, which I think is kind of interesting. Just as a little side note, is it possible that this guy who came out to help arrest Jesus later became one of Jesus' followers? Is it possible that they listed his name here in the gospel so we can look back, oh, that's when Malchus came to know him. He was one of the soldiers who was, arresting Jesus. But I want to stop for a minute and think about this because we become so aware. Now, some of us, maybe this is brand new to you. And you know what? Sometimes you feel intimidated if church and if the Bible's brand new to you, you may be in a better position today than some of the rest of us who have read these stories before because we're just so used to this. I want you to think about this. God is being arrested. It says they seized him there. They, they literally, they were coming to arrest God. What a travesty. The Bible says in John chapter 1, listen to these sad, sad words. 
In John chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. How many of us are lost? How many of us are wondering, how do you live life? What direction do you go? I just feel like I, I, I don't know what to do in my life. Can somebody please show me the way? Guess what it says in John? It says, there was the true light. There is a true light. Which coming into the world enlightens every man. That hope that we've been looking for, he has come. Isn't that good news? He was in the world. Are you kidding me? He was right here. He was in the world and the world was made through him. And the world did not know him. He came to his own and those who were his own did not receive him. Isn't that sad? Here God is, the one that we've been looking for, the the hope that we've been longing for, and he comes into our midst, and we did not even notice that he was here. Then another tragedy, Jesus had said at the Last Supper, hadn't he said to the disciples, you're going to scatter because of me? You're going to flee away from me? And they were all, no, Lord, no, we would never leave you. Peter had actually even said at one point, even I would follow you to jail. Even if I had to follow you to death, I would follow you, Jesus. And again, even though he knew it was coming, I can't imagine that it lessened the pain in your darkest hour that all your friends would leave you. That's what happened to our Lord. You kind of just, as you read through this story, you're kind of just getting the idea more and more. It's like everything is being pulled away from Jesus, isn't it? It's like just a continual process of rejection and support, and even eventually we're going to see the Father turning his head against him. And we'll talk about that here in just a minute. So that's the betrayal. That's Jesus' arrest. But then we begin to move towards the trials. God is on trial. Here's what we see. First of all, he was on trial before the Jewish people. In verse 57, it says, Those who had seized Jesus had led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were gathered together. But Peter was following him at a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest and entered in and sat down with the officers to see the outcome. Now the chief priests and the whole council kept trying to obtain false testimony against you. Now isn't that odd? Religious leaders were not wanting to know truth. They were trying to obtain. They had already made their verdict. They had already decided. You're going to see throughout this whole passage. They had already decided that Jesus was worthy of death. They were just trying to find a way to make sense of that in front of the crowds. They did not find any, even though many false witnesses came forward. So you get this image here. They've got this trial. There's this big hoopla. There's crowds around. There's people yelling. There's there's this whole crowd mentality beginning to form. All these people are coming forward. All these false witnesses making false claims. Nobody could prove that Jesus had done anything wrong. But later on, two came forward and said, This man stated, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. Now listen to the gall of a so-called leader for God. The high priest stood up and said to him, I don't think you stand up in God's presence. Amen? And get in his face. How brash, how bold, how foolish this man was. The high priest stood up and said to him, Do you not answer? What is it that these men are testifying against you? But Jesus kept silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. 
Jesus said to him, you have said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you, hereafter, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes. And that was kind of a way of him just, it was kind of a, oh my goodness, I can't believe what you just said. Okay, it was like a complete shock. All right. The high priest tore his robes. He rips his priestly garb and he says, he is blasphemed. What further need do we have of witnesses? They've got their proof now. All right. They had tried to find the false witnesses. Now they say, we don't need that anymore because everybody's heard. He said it against himself. Behold, you've now heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they answered, he deserves death. Then don't you notice verse 67? Then they spat in his face. Wait, don't just read this story as a, a fairy tale or just a story in a book. This is true. This is reality. The God of all creation entered into our existence. The light of the world came to us. Is there anything more humiliating than someone spitting in your face? They beat him with their fists. And others slapped him. And said, prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is the one who hits you? Can you tell us? Now, Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard, and this little girl came up to him. A servant girl came up and said, you too were with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you're talking about. When he had gone out to the gateway, another servant girl saw him and said to those who were there, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again, he denied it. He swore. He denied it with an oath. I swear to you, I do not know the man. A little later, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, Surely you too are one of them, for even the way you talk gives you away. He had a Galilean accent. We can tell you're with this guy. Then he began to curse and swear. Can you imagine? The Bible leaves out those curse words. I do not know the man. I wonder what words Peter inserted in there. Curse words. And immediately a rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the word which Jesus had said, Before a rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and he wept bitterly. You know, there's a couple of things in these verses that really kind of get to me. I, I think the part about Peter, I think for any of us, just the reality of when, when God was going through this time, he didn't need our help, okay? We understand that. He's fully sufficient on his own. But when God was going through this time, those who were closest to him were completely denying him. Peter not only denied him, but he used curse words. And then I can see Peter as he just, have you ever had one of those moments where you just, you turned your back on the Lord and you know exactly what you've done and just crushed because of it. And I can see all that just begin to wash over Peter. This the situation had gotten out of control. But the bottom line is there was nobody there for Jesus. But even worse than that, was that in a religious context, remember this is the chief priests and the scribes and the elders of the people, in a religious context, somebody, anybody, much less God, was spat upon, he was beaten, and he was slapped in the face. That sounds more like a mafia than church, doesn't it? What if you heard that somebody came to church somewhere in our town today and they spat on them? They beat them up and they slapped them around. And then the religious leaders are plotting together to kill Jesus. Isn't that odd? 
I mean, we're kind of used to hearing that. You know, we're, we, we know that this is what happened. But, but I mean, what if you heard today that your pastor was plotting and hired to kill somebody? Wouldn't that be a little bit shocking? Well, that's what these religious leaders are doing. They didn't care what the truth was. The reality was they wanted Jesus dead. They had already made the decision. Unfortunately, that doesn't seem super odd to us, does it? All throughout history, there have been false religious leaders. There have been imposters. There have been false shepherds of God's people, false prophets. And by the way, just in case you're wondering, it upsets you, it upsets God too. You can write down Ezekiel chapter 34, verses 1 through 10, because in those verses in Ezekiel 34, God says, listen, I'm paying attention and you people who were supposed to be representing me, you people who are supposed to be pointing people towards me, listen, I'm calling you into account. You have taken advantage of my people for your own good. That's exactly what these leaders were doing. The reason, one of the primary reasons that they wanted Jesus out of the way is because he was a threat to their power. And they wanted him removed. That's his Jewish trial. Then we have Jesus. Now, again, get the picture. Here he is. He's in the garden. He's being, uh, he's being disappointed by his disciples. He's being betrayed by Judas. He's being taken off probably in chains with a mob. And, you know, in the middle of the night, the Jewish trial probably lasted through the night. He's beat up. He's spat upon. He's slapped in the face. How are you after staying up all night? Much less having gone through all that. And now he's going to have a trial with Pilate, the Roman ruler. In uh, verse uh, 11 of chapter 27, it says, Now Jesus stood before, I think I skipped the Jewish, let me read this, the Jewish trial here. Now when the morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people conferred together against Jesus to put him to death, and they bound him and led him away and delivered him to Pilate the governor. Then we see Judas begin to kind of feel some remorse over what he's done, but I want to pick up in verse 11. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor questioned him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said to him, It is as you say. And while he was being accused by the chief priests and elders, so again, I want you to get this picture all throughout this, these religious leaders, they're relentless. I mean, they're on him. They're following him. They're not going to give up. He did not answer. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they are testifying against you? And he did not answer him with regard to even a single charge, so the governor was quite amazed. Now, I want to flip over because Matthew kind of stops at that point, and we pick up in uh, Luke chapter 23, verse 4. It says, Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they kept on insisting, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching all over Judea, starting from Galilee, even as far as this place. When Pilate heard it, he asked whether the man was a Galilean, And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who himself also was in Jerusalem at the time. So what happens is the Jewish leaders, they were given some authority to have a court system, but they were not given the authority to execute someone without Roman permission. So the Jewish people say, hey, we've already decided he's guilty. We need to make sure that he's going to be executed. We can't do that on our own, so we're going to take him to Pilate, who was the Roman governor. Now, Pilate was the governor over that region, and and, and Jerusalem was found in a region called Judea. 
Pilate was the ruler, the Roman governor, over Judea. His headquarters were actually over on the Mediterranean coast in a place called Caesarea. But he was very likely in Jerusalem because remember what's happening this week. What was happening? There was a feast, right? The Feast of Passover. The Romans were really big. Have you ever heard in history class about the Pax Romana, the Peace of Rome? The Romans were real big about keeping peace in their empire. So it's very likely that what Pilate was doing is he had come from Caesarea. He was there in Jerusalem. He says, listen, I'm going to make sure while there's this bit. Remember we talked about Americade? Okay. While Americade's going on in Jerusalem, I want to make sure that all the peace is kept. And so I'm going to be there personally myself. That's very likely why Pilate was there. But ultimately, Pilate decides, I don't want to mess with this. He finds out that Jesus is from Nazareth which is from the region of Galilee, which was north of there. And Herod was the ruler, the Roman ruler who was over that. And Herod happened to be in town. So Pilate says, hey, I'm going to send you to, to, to Herod now. So here Jesus says he goes from the garden. He goes to betrayal. He goes into his uh, Jewish trial. That's all night. They beat him. They spit upon him. They slap him in the face. They false accusations. They're trying to accuse him. They keep him up all night. The next day they send him to Pilate. Pilate says, hey, I don't want to mess with him. They sent him to Herod. And then that's where we pick up in uh, Luke chapter 23, verse 8. This is kind of strange. Now, Herod was very glad when he saw Jesus. For he had wanted to see him for a long time because he had been hearing about him and was hoping to see some sign performed by him. Oh, you know, Herod liked a good circus. And in fact, that's probably why he was in Jerusalem. Herod, remember, was over the area north of Jerusalem in, in the Galilee area, and he had come down to Jerusalem very likely. He was a half-Jew, and so he had come down. From what we know about Herod, it probably wasn't for worship, okay? He probably just wanted to be there for the party. And so he's like, hey, this is great. I'm here for Jerusalem. All this activity's going on. Man, let's have a party. Let's live it up. And man, now I got Jesus here. And he's going to do some tricks for me because I've heard he can do some really good tricks. Then he finds out it's a little more serious than some magic tricks. He questioned him at some length, but he answered him nothing. And the chief priests and scribes were standing there accusing him vehemently. I want you to see these guys. They're screaming. They're, they're, they're yelling at Jesus. They're making accusations against him. Again, they're just relentless. They are not going to give up. And Herod, with his soldiers, after treating him with contempt and mocking him, dressed him in a gorgeous robe and sent him back to Pilate. Kind of an odd verse in verse 12, too. Now Herod and Pilate became friends with one another that very day. For before that, they had been enemies with each other. Now Herod, Herod came from a family. There was a, there was a family called the Herods who ruled in that area for a long period of time. And this Herod that we're talking about, his specific name was Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas, as I said, ruled the area north and east of Jerusalem. And as I said, he was probably in town because of the Jewish Passover feast. And the reason that Pilate is sending him uh, to Herod is because he found out that Jesus' original birthplace was in Nazareth. Basically, Pilate didn't want to deal with it. Okay, so he found a loophole where he could send, put Jesus off on somebody. Again, I want you to get the picture. Here's Jesus methodically just one step at a time going through what? Rejection and abuse. He goes from his Jewish trial to Pilate. Pilate says, I don't want to deal with him. Here it says, man, I don't want to deal with him. I'm just in town for a party. I don't want to deal with this mess. By the way, I do think it's kind of interesting. You kind of get the impression that Pilate and 
and Herod became best buddies because of this? They used to be enemies and now they became friends? And sometimes people see Pilate kind of sympathetically because Pilate's wife, we're going to see here in just a minute, she seemed to kind of sense something was going on that maybe they need to watch out for. And Pilate even seems to ask some searching questions of the Lord. And sometimes people kind of infer in that maybe there was something spiritual going on with Pilate. But to me, if Jesus' trial and execution brought Pilate and Herod closer together, I'm not really seeing Pilate very positive, are you? And then finally there is his second trial with Pilate in Matthew 27 again. Turn back there to Matthew 27, verse 15. <clears throat> this is now at the feast. So here Jesus, he goes, from, he goes from Pilate to Herod. Now he's back to Pilate again. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the people any one prisoner whom they wanted. Apparently during this Passover season... The Roman governor had decided that he was going to pardon somebody each year during that festival. And as soon as you read that, you almost go, good. You know, Jesus, that, that, that could be his chance here, right? They could give him the opportunity to be let off even though he wasn't guilty. At that time, they were holding a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. Now, by the way, you read from some of the other Gospels, Barabbas was an insurrectionist, which if you know the Romans was probably one of the worst things you could be, Right? a troublemaker who tried to stir up people and gather a crowd so he could kind of go against the government. They had a guy in custody who was an insurrectionist and had, and had been connected with murder. Are you slowly just seeing the rejection that Jesus is going through? So when the people gathered together, Pilate said to them, who do you want for me to release to you? I can pardon somebody during the festival. Who do you want it to be? Is it Barabbas? Or Jesus, who is called Christ. For he knew, Pilate knew, that it was because of envy that they had had him. They, he knew that Jesus wasn't guilty, and he was trying to give an opportunity for Jesus to be let off. While he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife, men, you should listen to your wives more often, his wife sent him a message saying, have nothing to do with that righteous man. She wasn't talking about Barabbas. For last night I suffered greatly in a dream because of him. But he was a politician. And the crowds and everybody were stirred up. The chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowds to ask for bread. Now can you just see? Again, supposedly God's servants going around the crowd. Who do we want? Murderer or Jesus? Who are we going to crucify? I mean, it's like a pep rally. They're out there. It says they, they get the crowd. In just a minute, he says... Pilate's going to go ahead and make this decision because he didn't want a riot to happen. So you, you kind of get the idea. There's a lot of yelling. There's a, that mob mentality. There's a big crowd. It's starting to build. There's some momentum happening there. The chief priests are saying, who do we want? The governor said, which one's it going to be? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? Have you ever been rejected by your own child? You might be getting a little bit of a taste of what it would be like for Jesus to hear his special creation say about him, crucify him. What do you say about Jesus? Crucify him. And he said, why? What evil has he done? But they kept shouting all the more. You hear the crowd, crucify him, 
Crucify him. Crucify him. When Pilate saw that he was accomplishing nothing, but rather that a riot was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to that yourselves. And all the people said, his blood shall be on us and on our children. Pilate's wife was on to something. And it's very possible that Pilate was sensing something too. He seems reluctant to accuse him. But it's over with now. Pilate makes a decision. The trial is over. Jesus is going to be sentenced to death and torture. Instead of choosing their creator, the people in the crowd chose a murderer and a troublemaker to go free that day. Can you imagine what the Lord must have felt like? After all that, can you begin to just think about I mean, just for me, just staying up all night. You know, I'm not good after that. How about you? Staying up all night. How about being, uh, how about being uh, let down by your closest friends at your darkest hour? How about being betrayed with a kiss on the cheek? Doesn't that burn just thinking about it? Somebody kissing you on the cheek, and that was the signal to somebody, this is the one in the dark that you're supposed to grab? How about being taken off in chains? How about being accused by the very people who should know you best? The spiritual leaders. Beaten up, slapped, spat upon, jerked around with crowds hollering all along the way with chains around him from Pilate to Herod back to Pilate and then to finally hear, crucify him. Nail him a cross but after all that if you can believe it the worst is just about to begin and that's what i want to talk to you about now i want to talk to you about the cross as i shared with you earlier i really wish and i want to challenge you if you can handle it i i I gotta be honest with you i it's not easy to watch the passion I think I shared with you earlier in the service. I saw it one time, you know, when it first came out. And then uh, this past week, preparing for this time with you, I watched it. It's too much. It's too much. You just want to say, okay, enough. Stop. I mean, I get the picture. The problem with that is he really went through all that. It wasn't stopped. There wasn't an input to it. And so I want to challenge you this week as you're preparing for Easter to maybe, if you can, take that DVD, borrow it from somebody, or go rent that DVD, and just try to begin to look at that video. And this is not a story. He really did this. We can't sanitize it. The cross is execution. Brutal execution. Well, let's read the account of what happened and allow God to speak to us through that, hopefully. First of all, there was the scourging. In verse 26, it says, Then he finally relented, he released Barabbas, the criminal, true criminal, for them. But after having Jesus scourged, he handed him over to be crucified. Now, it's mentioned so quickly in Scripture that you may not catch it, but this was one of the most painful parts of crucifixion. 
flogging, a beating, a whipping, a scourging, as they called it. Basically, as I understand it, what they did is they would take Jesus to this place where, now these guys, this is what they did for a living, okay? They were good at torture, all right? You've seen those CIA movies and things where they're, you know, they're good at torturing people. Well, this, these guys were professional executioners, okay? They knew how to do it right. And they would tie his hands to a post, and he was probably either kneeling down on his knees or just kind of suspended, kind of halfway up in the air. And what these guys would do, there'd be one or possibly two, but what they would do is they would alternate across his back. They would take his clothes off, very likely stripped, just completely stripped. But if anything was left, he still, his back would have been exposed and his legs and, 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 and you know the bottom half of his body. And there would have been guys they would have taken. Now, they had these whips that they were leather whips. They had a handle, and then coming out from that handle were a bunch of strands of leather. And embedded in that leather were pieces of metal balls and broken pieces of sheep bones. And these guys would have came on one side of Jesus' back and they would have taken that whip and they would have slapped him across the back. Remember that song, By His What? Wounds? Maybe even more visual for me, By His Stripes. It can be translated. I'll never read those scriptures again or sing that song without thinking, in my mind, seeing stripes across Jesus' back, whelps across his back. There would probably be two guys, but if there was one, he would come down this side. Now listen, these are, like I said, these are professional executioners. So do you think these were wimpy little guys? These were strong, big men, soldiers, men's men. And they would take that whip and they would slap across Jesus' back. And I don't mean to be grotesque or gory with this, but friends, the reality, this is what happened. Can you imagine them taking those bones and jerking that whip back and ripping ripping open the back of our Lord? Then there was the mocking and the beatings. In verse 27, Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole Roman cohort around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And after twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and a reed in his right hand. And they knelt down before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! So they spat on him, and they took the reed and began to beat him on the head. I don't know about you, but I mean, that is really where I get to. I I cannot even process that. When would you ever take a stick and hit somebody on the head? After that, they mocked him. They took the scarlet robe off him and put his own garments back on him and led him away to crucify him. Now notice, these were the soldiers of the governor. Remember, the governor was from Caesarea on the coast. So probably he had brought some of his men with him to protect him as he was coming to Jerusalem for the, for the, the, um, the festival that was happening there. What does that tell me? These were probably some of his what? Finest elite men. They were going to rough Jesus up. And it says they gathered the whole Roman cohort around him. Now, a cohort, we know historically, was about 600 men. 
Now, if it just said they gathered the cohort around him, I would say, well, maybe it was 600 or maybe that was just the word they were using to say it was of those men. But what does it say? They gathered what? The whole Roman cohort. If a cohort was 600 men, there were 600 guys taking their turns at Jesus. They took him to the praetorium, which would have been uh, Pilate's palace or his main headquarters there in Jerusalem. Now, I don't know about you ladies, but guys, have you ever been in a locker room where everybody turned on one person? You talk about a nightmare for a man to be stripped of his clothes. How humiliating would that be if you were put in the middle of hundreds of men and your clothes were torn off by the way Those clothes were taken off after you had just had your back ripped open. So as they took those clothes off, don't you think there was some pain involved with that? With the wounds that he had on his back? They put a royal robe on him, making fun of him. You're some kind of king you are. They twisted a crown of thorns. Again, we're so used to this story. Yes, Jesus died on the cross. He had a crown of thorns. No, think about it. Thorns. Crushed into his head. And by the way, from what we know about the condition that Jesus was in, remember how I told you last time that he had this thing, it was called hematidrosis. And what it basically was just a, a doctor's term for, a medical term for, he, had, he was under such anguish and such stress that the blood vessels had burst underneath his skin. And as a result of that, blood was coming out with the uh, perspiration. Well, when a person gets to that condition, doctors tell us that, that their skin is very sensitive. Okay. So here's his skin in a very sensitive state, and it would have been bad enough in any condition, but in that condition, they are slamming a crown of thorns upon his head, into his head. They spat on him again. They beat him on the head with a stick. I I just can't even... I can't hardly handle that. How could you be hitting the Lord in the face. Then they ripped the robe off of him again. Again, just there's the wounds again. Then we see Jesus being nailed to the cross in verses 32 through 31. It says, as they were coming out, they found a man of Cyrene named Simon, whom they pressed into service to bear his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull, they gave him wine to drink mixed with gall, And after tasting it, he was unwilling to drink. And then it says in verse 35, and when they had crucified him. So apparently in that period, that's when he actually was nailed to the cross. So basically what happens is Jesus is let out of there. And we don't know for sure. Some say he was carrying the whole cross. Some say historically they would have just been carrying the cross beam. It doesn't really matter. He was carrying somewhere between 100, 200, or maybe more pounds after going through. Now just think about psychologically where you would be. Your state of mind up all night, beaten, humiliated, yelled at. Can't you just see yourself kind of in a daze? I mean, can't even hardly see straight. And then the physical weight that's buried on him, and now he's got to carry a 200-pound beam, at least. He has to carry it outside the walls of Jerusalem, and then he's going to go to the place where they're going to lay him down, and they're going to nail his hands with spikes to the crossbar. And then they're going to nail his feet to the crossbar. And then they're going to pick it up and drop it in a hole. How do you think that would have felt? 
being picked up, the weight of gravity pulling down on his body, and then being slammed into a hole. The searing pain that must have went through his hands and his feet. Finally, we see Jesus hanging from the cross. In verse 35, it says, And when they had crucified him, they divided up his garments among themselves by casting lots. They were just kind of gambling for his clothes. It was kind of some trinkets, you know, souvenir. They were just rolling dice, having fun. Don't forget, the Romans, some say, had, had crucified as many as 30,000 people in this area. Okay? So this is just another day at the uh, execution. This is just kind of something they were used to. Sitting down, they began to watch over him there. And above his head, they put up the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. At that time, two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads and saying, You who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. In the same way, and this is just incredible to me, these religious leaders... They were not going to let up. They followed. Wouldn't you think finally they just say, okay, they've taken care of it. We're just going to go back home. They are still there, along with the scribes and the elders, mocking him and saying, he saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him now come down from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he delights in him. Can you imagine those words ringing in the Lord's ears? Because he's been sensing it. The father is about to turn his face away from him. Let God come rescue him now if he delights in him. For he said, I am the son of God. The robbers who had been crucified with him were also insulting him with the same words. Now, thankfully, Luke chapter 23 tells us that one of those robbers, before it was too late, put his faith in Jesus. Now, this had started about the uh, third hour, which would have been about 9 a.m. in the morning, but it says from the sixth hour, darkness fell upon all the land until the ninth hour. So that was about noon until about 3 o'clock. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Then you read down a few more verses. It says in verse 50, And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Now we certainly documented the physical pain. And I think it's important for us to realize that. We need to visualize. We need to see God came and was beaten and tortured. In fact, the book of Isaiah seems to give the impression that he was marred. He was disfigured beyond recollection. You couldn't... You wouldn't have recognized him if you had seen his face. But worse than all that is what Jesus alludes to in verse 46. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Everybody's been bailing out. And now the father turns his face away from the son. I don't think we can understand that. All I can do is state it and hope that God can kind of give us a little bit of a sense. Perfect fellowship. Jesus had never committed a sin. He had never faced the consequence of sin. And now the one who had never done wrong was going to take all the consequences upon himself, not one by one, but all in one blow. 
He was going to feel what it was like for me to be separated from God for all of eternity and have to pay for my sins. He was feeling that right then. That's the worst part of the cross. He took my penalty for me. 2 Corinthians 5.21, I shared that with you last week. It says, "He He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And then the verse that I mentioned to you earlier and we sang about, and he himself, does this not mean more to you now? And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds or by his stripes across his back, you were healed. Isn't it breathtaking? I pray that you will never again say, Jesus died on the cross that fast again without something in you stopping and realizing what that really means. Somebody said after the first service, we are so used to murder in our world that it doesn't mean that much to us that Jesus died. We need to know He was tortured and beaten. Sin had its day on our Savior. It's breathtaking, isn't it? And to be honest with you, as I thought about this this week, I thought about some applications that we can make for our life, but I think I'm just going to let the Lord make the application. Maybe I would just say this, along with Julie. Is there any way you could say no to this man? With his tear-stained eyes and the blood in his hands. Would you tell him you don't need him? You don't think you'll need his love? This morning, would you let God speak to you through what Christ did for you on the cross? Would you bow with me for just a moment? God, help us to understand what you have done for us. And Lord, help us to know what that means for our lives right now. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, just a few verses over from where we're reading. One of the soldiers, after he saw the darkness, now get the picture in your mind. This, remember, the, this was just another execution? I don't think so. After he saw the darkness come over the earth, so that's what was it, three hours from, from noon to three o'clock? And then there was an earthquake. One of the soldiers made this statement. He was frightened, and he said, truly this was the Son of God. I pray, you know what, there may be somebody in this room that as little as an hour and a half ago, you used God's name with a curse word. You don't really have that much regard for God. 
you're here for some reason, somebody invited you or you thought you'd stop in and hear what we have to say. But you, you're not you're not walking with God. You've never accepted his gift. Maybe you didn't even know. You know, there was a Roman soldier. I don't know for sure, but it seems like he got it. Maybe today you'd say, you know what? You cannot get any farther away from God than I am. But I understand. God has brought me to the foot of the cross. And I want to give my life to Jesus Christ. Would you do that today? If you're a Christian, did you hear what I read? Did you hear what I read? By his wounds you were healed. We like that part, right? He forgave me of my sins. But listen to this, the purpose of this statement. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that, that's a purpose statement, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. We like the forgiveness of sin and going to heaven one day. But God's purpose wasn't just so that you would get out of hell for eternity. God's purpose was so that you could live the life he created for you to live. If you are taking for granted the price that Jesus Christ paid for you, you've received him as your savior. He's come into your life and washed your sins away. But you are taking lightly your relationship with him. I pray that the cross says to you, you cannot take this lightly anymore.